We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over Welcome to Feminish, a podcast where we elevate the stories of women by celebrating their unique relationships with food. I'm your host, Hope, and joining me tonight is my co-host, Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Hi, everyone. And Casey Highsmith. Casey is a PhD candidate pursuing a doctoral degree in American studies. Her academic research focuses on historical foodways and its relation to our modern consumption patterns and attitudes towards food, gender, and digital media. Welcome, Casey. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for joining us. have you. So, Casey, where are you calling from? So I am uh, housebound, like most others, but I am in uh, <laughs> nowhere cool. Um, I am in Carborough, North Carolina. It's a little little bitty town attached to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is where the University of North Carolina, where I'm doing my degree at. Wonderful. I don't think we've spoken to anyone from um, North Carolina yet, so you're a first. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'm so, so I'm not from here, but I'm happy to represent the state. For the so time. where are you from? Because I, um, you also studied at Boston University. So where are you from? And how did you, I guess, how did you get into studying food? Yeah. So um, I'm originally from Texas. Um, I spent pretty much almost most of my life there in Texas. I am from um, another college town that's actually pretty similar to the one I'm in right now. I'm very kind of, kind of conservative, very old school Southern. Um, it's a land grant university, so an ag university. My dad was, um, or is, he works for 4-H. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with 4-H. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, my dad, um, I grew up with my dad as a county extension agent. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I raised animals. I was in livestock shows. I always had a garden. I knew how to can from a very early age. Um, my mom uh, did veterinary science. Um, so very big ag family. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Texas and I ended up at the University of Texas in Austin, just a couple towns over. Um, and I originally wanted to go to culinary school when I was in, uh, high school, I was like determined and my parents convinced me to go to a four-year college first. And I did, and I'm very glad because I don't think I would have been able to stand up to the rigor of actual restaurant kitchens. (laughs) Um, I'm very short too. I know that's not like a salient topic or issue for the radio or the podcast kind of world, but um, but I'm very short, and so I realized that I probably wouldn't be able to reach much in a kitchen. Uh, so I have I worked professionally in kitchens, and I went to a technical high school for culinary arts, and I am five feet tall. Same, same. So did you have a stool? Just struggle. <laughs> Yeah, they, they told me. I, I spoke with some recruiters beforehand, and they were like, "Well, you're very short." And you'd probably need a stool. How interesting. I would never think that the height would have be such a big player, but you're right. I mean, I guess it's like, yeah, I mean, kitchens, I mean, like just to get at the heart of what I study, kitchens are a very gendered or restaurant kitchens are a very gendered space, right? They're built for men. And, um, all men. 
Yeah, tall men. And so, um, so yeah, so I'm very grateful to be writing and thinking and researching kitchens and what happens in them rather than being in them. Um, so yeah, so I went to undergrad at University of Texas in Austin, where I realized I wanted to study and think about food rather than you know, be in a kitchen working in it. Um, and I worked with several different food groups there, um, food history groups. Um, I actually studied Jane Austen. That was my area of study as an undergrad. So I studied Jane Austen in food when um, I went abroad and several times and studied Jane Austen in her home in England um, and Perfect. how food, right? She's amazing. <laughs> I'm still very like much a secret Jane Austen scholar. I try to put her in as much work as I do as possible. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's fun. So yes, I fell in love with food history by looking at how important food was for real women and the works that they produced, be it um, their their literature, their their cookbooks, which is kind of an obvious connection, but, but kind of anything that women produced and how they included the everyday, um, because the everyday is political, the everyday is very important, um, and specifically kind of stuck with food, finding, finding ways to bring my food back into my life that I wanted to do. Um, so I um, left uh, undergrad and went directly to get a degree in gastronomy at Boston University, which is where I really just was like, now I'm going to talk about food explicitly. <laughs> uh, full time. So that's where I ended up really just kind of jumping into the food world. Uh, while I was there, I continued to kind of hone my work in food photography and food writing and worked for the Boston Globe and some other large publications, uh, King Arthur Flower, and um, publications kind of all over the nation. And uh, with my photography, my food writing, and my recipe development that kind of centered around historical foodways, which wasn't really talked about so far in like the mass media. Boston Globe wasn't really doing that kind of stuff. And um, I really pushed my editors to let me kind of you know, include little bits of that in my writing and just realized I wanted to keep doing it. So I uh, went from there to uh, here in North Carolina to continue my education with a PhD uh, and continue researching and writing. Um, and American studies is a really great field because it combines history and culture and all these different kind of methodologies that um, other fields may, may, get, may hone in a little too narrowly. And so I'm allowed to kind of bring all of my different skill sets together, the photography, um, the audiovisual kind of expertise that I've gained from working in media and, and, um, and my writing all together. So it's been a really fun process to kind of combine all these random things. And then surprisingly enough, this is un not food related, but we have a giant Jane Austen program here at the University of North Carolina. <laughs> Whoa. And, uh, yeah, and I didn't even realize that when I applied. And my my mentor, who's a leading Jane Austen scholar from my undergrad, um, is uh, was coming here actually this summer to speak at, as their keynote. Um, so it was going to be this huge kind of you know full full circle situation for me. Um, COVID has obviously shut all of that down, but I'll actually be giving oh, a, so a Jane Austen, yeah I'll be giving a Jane Austen and food talk um, through their like digital uh, <gasps> reprisal of their. Num normal summer thing later uh, later this June. So that should be fun. Can you give us a little taste of what Jane Austen and food of a taste? Oh my gosh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> no <worries. laughs> um, of what of what like the connection between Jane Austen and food is? I just got so excited. That's so neat. 
Yeah. So there's, um, there's so much, I think, you know, food, food, just like anything else, just, it, it has so much subtext and metaphor and it really kind of points to all these different things. I don't know how familiar y'all are with Jane Austen's works, but, but I'm going to admit that I just Googled it because I recognized it was a name that I should know, but I didn't really know anything. Oh, <laughs> so, so most people know Mr. Novelist. Right. Yeah. People, most people know Mr. Darcy and there's a number that's usually associated with him, which is, he's a very rich man. He's, he's worth 10,000 pounds a year, which, mm-hmm. which means he's, I, I think that's equivalent to like a billionaire in our current time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's, he's filthy rich and, um, and he's, he's the pride in pride and prejudice, right? Like he's the proud man. And um, so we, you know, in, in, in contemporary times, we don't really have a lot of connections to understand like how rich does that mean he was? Like we don't, aside from like making those calculations. And one of the ways that we can kind of think through that is his material possessions and what he does and what that meant to do those things back then. And one of the things that he has on his table at all times is this pile. There's a quote in the book and it's this pyramid. So a neatly stacked pyramid of nectarines and peaches. And there was one other fruit, but effectively fruit that has to be grown in a greenhouse, which means you have to have the space and like the staff and the labor and, all the different things that go into like having that specific fruit in the middle of very, very cold, wet England. Yes. Um, So meaning like he was part of the globalized culture. He was importing fruit potentially. Um, He had a lot of it. So he, you know, he wasn't lacking. Um, So it just kind of like shows his worth um, in a different kind of way, in a way that Jane Austen was kind of subtly pointing at in her real life, bringing real life knowledge into the way she was describing her characters. Um, another one from the other way is talking about like one of her characters um, is very, very poor and she goes back to visit her poor, poor, poor family and they're talking about the milk that they're drinking and it has this blue sheen on the milk and back in Jane Austen's time, um, milk that had blue on it probably would have had additives. So it was like adulterated milk that the family might have bought from a black market. Um, so there's like all these different indicators talking about how food points to different socioeconomic status and cultural situations um, that I find really fascinating. I'm sure other people find it really boring, but no, but I cool. <laughs> no, I think that's super neat. Like I was thinking about um, in uh, Little Women, the in the movie, I this scene you know, always yeah. stuck with me was when um, the youngest character, Amy, they, Kirsten Dunst's character, they're like, they realize they should go give a lot of their Christmas meal to this really poor family. And she has mm-hmm. an orange that she was so excited about. And the reason why, you know, it's the Civil War, they're up in New England, to get an orange was like, oh my gosh, like that was so exotic and special. Right. And so the yeah. act of her giving up that orange was like, you know, even though the movie was just a little like, you know, it was a little regrettable for her, but um she still gave it up and that was like you know this is a very special it's not just like oh we're giving our food away it's like this is a very special imported like maybe to equivalent of like some rare cheese that you can't get in the united states and you finally get it here you know some imported something right Um, yeah and we've lost a lot of that like globalization knowledge of like where things come from either because we've created technologies uh agricultural technologies to grow things in different spaces but more likely because we we import the things so frequently that they're never lacking on our shelves. Of course. Um, one thing the quarantine might kind of expose is that, you know, with all of these things shut down, you know, might there might be less XYZ in the grocery store and you might have to think about like, oh, that comes from such and such place. Um, so, yeah, I really like pulling apart literary um, yeah. 
examples to kind of talk about real life, um, historic and contemporary. So. Uh, another example of that that I really like is um, like sh like in Shakespeare writing times and like around, you know, um, so like we, way before Jane Austen, when they would call something sweet, they would call like a sunset sweet or a person, you know, her beauty was as sweet as blah, 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 or the sunset, you know, the view of it was as sweet as this. And we still know that as a compliment, like we can still recognize reading it now as a compliment, but the, there were so many extra layers to calling something sweet back then. Like we think of sweet as now you're like, oh, you're nice, you're kind, you're soft, you know, those things. But sweet also yeah. meant like so rare and special because again, it's, it's England, like in Jane Austen's era, but um, to get something that was sweet was, it was also exotic. And so it had this layer of like specialty and rareness and like, really something of really high value so it was still a compliment to call someone or something sweet but it because like sweetness was associated with such rare items that it had this other layer of like specialty and uniqueness right yeah there's all these kind of hidden messages that really aren't that hidden when you dive a little bit into the history of mm -hmm. whatever era place you're talking about um to us we're like oh we're uncovering some secret code that you know elizabethan era uh citizens would have would have known, but we're figuring it out. But, you know, it just takes a little bit of extra effort. And that's the kind of work that I like to do is is digging through kind of that code. It like brings in all of my different areas of, of interest. So it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's so interesting. Now, Casey, your PhD research focuses on historical foodways. And, you know, we're talking about Jane Austen and that time period, but is there any particular time period that your PhD focuses on? Yeah, so my PhD, um, and I, I don't know if you've had other PhD candidates on your on your show yet, um, but uh, so so one of the things in your dissertation is they always tell you to narrow, narrow, narrow. So in in my ideal world, my PhD would not be limited to a specific um, as specific of a time period as I have it, but um, for the sake of how long you have to write your dissertation, they want you to keep it kind of contained. So I look specifically at how women use food as a means of resistance, specifically in the United States, to create a little boundary on where I'm looking. Um, and I look um, at the starting around the suffrage era, suffrage, yeah, suffrage era um, to, to right now. So about 100 years is what I'm looking at. And I don't look at the whole 100 years. I look at flashpoints during that time that um, highlight different resistance movements women were were fighting against creating working within um, and using food as that particular medium that they were trying to communicate um, through and with and about and so so yeah I, I cover a lot of ground but I would say that kind of hundred years which is really poignant since this is the hundredth anniversary of suffrage um, so it, it has created a nice little bookend for that time frame Oh my gosh. Can you tell us more about what some of those flashpoints are and like, and, and what the role food or the symbolism food might've had? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I argue is that we talk about different uh, feminist movements as waves. Um, that's a general kind of, you know, second wave feminist movement. You know, we talk about a lot right. of movements as waves, right? Um, Cause it's, it's, it's never really going away, but it's, it's, it's kind of ebbing and flowing. And um, I, I don't necessarily like that metaphor, and I'm I'm not the one creating a new new version of this. Um, a lot of people use turns because you're just constantly turning back and forth to catch your breath. Like you you turn towards this problem, you face it with whatever you need to face it with. In this case, I'm looking at how women faced it with food, and then they turn away to catch their breath and they come back to fight another day. Um, 
which is a really like poetical kind of way of looking at it. I think it's really beautiful and sad all at the same time. So I start in the suffrage era and look at the way women used food then through cookbooks and they do a lot of luncheons and banquets and what kind of feels like soft activism, but was was pretty substantial in that time frame. Um, they did a lot of protesting too, but it would probably pale in comparison to what we're doing um, today, uh, but still nonetheless like super necessary. Um, I look at the 1960s, which is another big feminism moment, the second wave feminism, um, when you know more women are going to colleges, uh, more women have work rights, equal rights amendment is kind of coming through. Um, looking at those kinds of movements and what happens then. I also look at the 1980s, which was a big um, time for women-owned restaurants. Um, okay. The women-owned restaurant movement was pretty big here and in England. I focus here instead of England. And um, all the different restaurants that popped up that were explicitly like women-only restaurants and what that meant for women, like women with an X um, and versus women with a Y. Um, and the different spellings of women and what kind of women that included or excluded. Now, and, can you, I don't mean to interrupt, but can no, you explain that a little bit? Because um, I have to say when Sandy and I were first getting into this project, my mother is like my, one of my ultimate proofreaders that and my father-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she was like, why are you misspelling women? Because I realized like you're doing it so often that it's intentional. And Sandy and I often use women with an X mm -hmm. Um but I also had my mother-in-law comment about women with a Y. And I feel like a lot of people just don't really understand the nuances of like why those alternative spellings of women came about, why there's the alternative spelling with a Y and why there is the one with the X and what they both mean. Yeah, definitely. So there's no, just for everyone listening, like there's no set, um, you know, the dictionary Webster's did not say like this spelling explicitly means this. So take all of this with a grain of salt whenever you do find it in the wild um, and know that the person using it might not necessarily use it in the way that everyone else uses it, um, good or bad. Um, so back in the, I think this even started in like the 60s and 70s, but I think kind of the heydays would be the 80s. Women, um, certain women groups, and I'm going to miss this up, but just women that was spelled differently. Sometimes women spelled, women's groups spelled women differently to denote that they were a group of women. Um, they wanted to either separate from men, so they took kind of the M-E-N part of it out, right? Um, and then some wanted to further separate and say that they were only cis women. They were only biologically women. Um, uh, and there were all these other different kind of ramifications, or not ramifications, um, stipulations, I mean, um, to what that meant there were groups that were explicitly for um, queer women or lesbian women, just all these different groups that you would want to, like subgroups you would want to create. And it was, you know, it's, it's built on hostility mostly. And especially the ones that were trans exclusion, ex I'm not going to say it right, trans exclusionary. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, lots of words. Um, that mom brain coming back in again. So yeah, so, so Today we use women with an X, much in the same vein that we use Latinx, and some folks are starting to use folk with an X at the end, yeah. Yeah. which is hard for me to wrap my brain around sometimes because it's like, that just doesn't make <laughs> like linguistic sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> like there's, you know, women with an X in the middle, it's like you're jumping over the vowel, so it works. Um, but yeah, it's along the same vein where you're just trying to be as included, um, ex inclusionary as possible, inclusive as possible. Um, but previous iterations of 
respellings of women. Um, and I've seen some other ones that are pretty unique, like W-I-M-M-I-N, I think is one of them. So yeah, you get to say like pretty weird spellings and they all denote different groups of belonging, basically. Uh, so, so all these restaurants use different versions of that too. So most of them were pretty open. Um, the only people that weren't invited were men pretty much um, because they wanted to create a space. There's a lot actually in New England and Massachusetts, a really cool one called Bread and Roses opened up next to Harvard. And they wanted to create a space for women and children and their children under 18. Um, this was kind of like in their bylaws. They wanted to create a space that was safe for women um, specifically women who were maybe um, suffering from domestic abuse um, or, or any kind of sexual harassment. And so that's why they excluded men. Um, but some went so far as to say, we only want a certain kind of woman involved. Um, and sometimes that also, you know, denoted based on race, unfortunately. Um, that wasn't necessarily reflected in the spelling of women, but, you know, maybe in other ways. I also had an understanding of the word as what well, when you spelled women with a Y, um, that it was synonymous with hymen like M-Y-N. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, so the reason you might do an X is because recognizing that not all women will have a hymen. So you're getting, right. get, getting away from the bio, biological piece of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I never heard that. I, I knew that we were choosing Sandy and I with this project with Femidish. We're choosing to use the X because, um, you know, we had much discussion about uh, which voices we would or would not invite onto this platform um, and we finally decided that it had to it would it would be female or female identifying mm. people um and so not not men unless I, I unless i guess someone was an academic studying feminism who happened to be a male then maybe they would have a place um in this particular podcast but um I had never heard that the Y would might have been connected to Hyman. My mother-in-law mentioned that it did exist back in the 60s. My in-laws were um, very active in the New England commune um, community and movements. Um, yeah. And she said it was popular back then, but I, I had no idea that it had any connection to a Hyman or not a Hyman. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I and think, it, I mean, like Casey just said, there's like not a, a Webster's Dictionary, but that was my of my association in my head. Well, Casey. Yeah, and I think it, like, you know, your mother-in-law is probably, you know, your mother-in-law is exactly correct in that it started as a way to give women a space, you know, separate, but then some women took that a step further to further, further kind of, you know, break away from that, um, that cause of feminism, which at its root, feminism is very inclusive, and they wanted a specific kind of feminism. Um, and usually you see that happening with, um, with a lot of race bias in there too. Um, it's usually like specifically against trans individuals, but it's it's got a lot of race built into it. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so who knows, like hopefully that doesn't happen with women with an X, um, but who knows what, what turn of events. That's the crazy thing about language, which is another weird thing that I study. I, I was a linguistic scholar as an undergrad too. Um, that's the weird thing about language is that it evolves so much, much like recipes too, that who knows what will get co-opted, what will get changed, um, what's out of our control, even the people who, who who started Women with an X for a good reason, like who knows what might happen down the road. Hopefully, knock on wood, that doesn't, but we'll see. Wow, there's so much tied up in this. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're a woman after my own heart with all of your varied um, kind of academic interests, although they all do seem to have somewhat of a relationship with 
food. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, I I sit back and think like, how did I get here? And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's clear, it's clear, Casey, how it happened. Like it's right in front of you. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so we're just talking about like the like food uh, language when it comes to women, um, and then recognizing like what we just said that a lot has to do with food. Tell us about your project, Food Herstory. Talk about taking a, a word back. No, it's not history. It's herstory. Yeah. So that is definitely not the herstory part is not my doing. The food herstory, hashtag food herstory is, is my hashtag. Um, and some folks have been using, um, or no, lots of folks have been using herstory for a long time. I think even you know, the Smithsonian uses it. Um, they did in their latest like campaign they had over the spring. Um but yeah, so I, I just wanted to focus on the food aspect of that um, because so 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 many times we dismiss food and women. And again, I am not the first scholar to to break down this wall or whatever. We for years we've dismissed women and food or talking about them academically or seriously because we thought that we had to separate them in order to take women's issues seriously. Um, and in the suffrage era, they purposely coupled that image um, of a housewife a woman in the kitchen with po politics because they knew that's how they were going to get the vote. Cause they were like, we only want to, we only want the vote so we can make sure we can monitor the house better and do these things. They had obviously much deeper ulterior motives, but um, you know, they had bigger, grander ideas, but that's the kind of optics they use, the rhetoric they used. And I think we forget often that that's still a very important place of politics is, is the kitchen, is the food space, the fields, the garden, wherever it may be. Right now, the grocery stores on the front lines. Um, and they're just hugely important places to kind of combine. So, so that's what I study is kind of everything that falls under food herstory. Um, and the hashtag is important to me simply because I, I study mostly, I love food history, but what I love is how it informs what we're doing right now. Um, you know, I don't necessarily believe in everything being cyclical. That's kind of not how historians really believe nowadays. Um, but what we're seeing has happened before. And, you know, we can learn from previous um, situations to kind of unpack some of these complex issues we still have yet to really tackle, like race, um, especially in feminism, especially in food. Um, so, yeah, the hashtag is hugely important just because it, it combines all of the aspects that I study um, and it makes for a really nifty tag on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. Uh, Another funny word one is a, a great um, podcast that I listened to is called Throwing Shade and the woman on there she uh, started a podcast called History the Sequel. The Sequel, I love the it. The Sequel, oh yeah. Where, where she talks about like this you know big events throughout history but with the like women who had way bigger influence in those um those different events than we ever gave them credit for. So she took back sequel. I'm a sucker for any kind of weird word pun. I'm also like a huge, which I hate that it's called that dad joke. Like it should just be cool person jokes. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. There needs to be like a, a neutral version of it. Just a good a pun is what it is, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge fan of, fan of, fun of puns, fan of puns. I'm a huge fan of puns, so I, I love any kind of, like, wordplay like that. Um, I don't even care how dorky it is. And food <laughs> studies, I don't know how many food academics y'all have worked with so far, but I've met some food academics that are just completely against any kind of food pun or food cliche in their writing. Oh, gosh. Uh, like, give us a taste. Give us, you know, any of those things that, that are just so colloquial. And I had, I have a colleague, and she will, like, 
go to her grave just against them. And I just am like, no, they make our writing so much better. I love them so much. I mean, I love them. That's like where Femidish came from was originally was just like me playing with words and this this idea of exploring like feminism and food. And I don't know if like, I'm, I'm sure you have just listening to you talk about your love of words um, and linguistics. It's just like the word dish is like one of my favorite words with all of its varied meaning, meanings yeah, and how you say it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great name. So you get two thumbs up from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about uh, some of then your 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 results here. Like, what are the when you've been studying women throughout these times? You know, you mentioned specifically your dissertation research and all your other um, research about when it comes to women and through history and things. Are there any commonalities, any themes that you've been able to pull out from some of those big flashpoints you mentioned, or even farther back in history? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we still, we, and I, and I don't mean to say this again, like I, I'm really anti-cycles. Like I don't think we're just repeating ourselves, but we're going back to, we're, we're going back to rhetoric and optics that we know work um, or that we know has been overlooked. Like it continues to be overlooked. Food labor is hugely just ignored, um, whether that be, you know, ignored because ignored that it's labor at all people just dismiss it um, especially the labor people do in terms of like cooking in your own kitchen for your family um, to to you know women in kitchens and in industrial and restaurant kitchens um, the labor itself but then all the different people involved in that so you and and including cookbooks you know um, church cookbooks were dismissed for so long but it completely undervalued the the work women specifically were doing for those organizations and then the you know fundraisers they were doing for those you know through those whether they were using that cookbook to raise money for their church or for some other kind of initiative in the community um they were always dismissed you know all these little spiral bound cookbooks they're they're nothing but those were hugely important in the way women operated and used their agency to to do things when they were not allowed um, or not given the opportunity to work to have bank accounts, to publish, to do to do anything. Um, and we see that today, you know, we have a lot more agency today. Uh, most of us or many of us have a lot more agency today, but there's still so many that, that don't. Um, but even those of us who do have that agency, um, you know, white women, we still have a lot more agency, but we still aren't paid the same. We still um, usually are the, the default when it comes to childcare or any kind of housework. Um, Tons of, of partners are stepping up, but that doesn't change the kind of socio-dynamics that happen outside of that home. Um, so we see that time and again. So we see these historic cookbooks um, being replayed currently with cookbooks that talk about um, specifically Trump and his administration and how to um, leverage your vote through your cooking, through your food um, to you know, elect a new administration in 2020. So we see kind of these parallels, which I find really interesting, but where we deviate is how women are um, connecting to each other, connecting to create the cookbooks or connecting to sell the cookbooks or share the messages about them. They obviously didn't have Instagram back in the suffrage era. Um, if they did, I think it would have been amazing. Um, <laughs> It's actually a piece that I'm trying to write right now is like, what would what would suffrage era like food folks have done with Instagram? I think it'd be really funny to see. Oh, my gosh. I could see what like happened? a um, 
what's that website? Uh, McSweeney's. They have. I don't know if yes. you guys read that. I feel like that I would be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like they would right have a really good a really good way to write about that. That's great. They would, and the unfortunate thing is, uh, folks back then were pretty uh, loquacious and long winded, and so I think they wouldn't have understood the hashtag or the caption. <laughs> Like there, there'd be no way they could fit into a hundred or two or two hundred and eighty characters whatsoever on Twitter. Um, so yeah, but we're seeing these really cool. So one of the things that I really study is that transition. So I, I study the food itself and the women, but also the technology. That's a big part of mine. Um, I'm really interested in in the algorithms and the hashtags and how all of those play out in favor of women. How women co-opt existing infrastructures um, like the internet, um, like the digital algorithms how they co-opt them through hashtags, um, which I think we're seeing played out really interestingly right now on Instagram with Black Lives Matter, um, how women are using those tools that were not built for them. They were built for capitalism. They were built for for other people, for, for men, um, you know, if you really want to get down to it, and um, how they're using that to leverage their voices. Um, and I'm specifically looking at the women talking about food. So yeah, we see some really cool parallels. We see some really new things, how women are operating in restaurant kitchens like they definitely wouldn't have done back then. Um, pretty much this whole, you know, pretty much until the 80s, there weren't any women chef um, chefs. And, uh, you know, seeing how that's changed is really exciting too, um, especially with the restaurant ownership as well. That's a pretty big um, difference that we see today. And it's only changed, you know, in the past 30 years, which is crazy. Can you give a couple examples when you were just talking about like some of the um, like co-opting of hashtags and social media um, that would help me with a few examples. And especially if you have any um, examples about with some of the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, that's really at the forefront right now. So I study hashtags as a taxonomy, which taxonomy just means a group of words used by a community. Um, it's like jargon, kind of, um, but but a little, a little like everyone would be able to understand the words you're using, but not the way you're using them, maybe. Um, so it's not slang, it's just you use them for a specific reason. And so I think that hashtags work very similarly, or people use hashtags that way. So when you put a hashtag in front of something, you're indicating that you're part of this community, um, especially when you couple hashtags together. So if you use food and vegan and uh, southern vegans or something like that together they create this little grouping um, and then when you put the hashtag on them in a specific app like Instagram or Facebook now or Twitter um, they physically create or digitally create rather a link that links you to other people using those same hashtags so you're creating these little pockets of community everywhere um, sometimes these communities are huge, sometimes they're really small, um, you know, and there's all these different variations. So one of the hashtags I was studying for a while um, was fire cider. I don't know if y'all are familiar with fire Oh, cider. yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so you made some last winter, right, Sandy? I yeah. sure did, right in a big old cauldron outside over a fire. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. So you're very well aware. Um, so you might also be aware of the free fire cider campaign that's that was based out of Massachusetts. Do y'all know about that? I don't. So Free Fire Cider was a campaign started by herbalists and then just enthusiasts who had made Fire Cider for forever um, that, you know, Fire Cider is a general term. It's it's like uh, seltzer water, something like that, right? Um, and a company out of Massachusetts tried to trademark the term Fire Cider, even though it's been around for decades and um, had 
been originally used and already published by a bunch of other folks, but, but it was published in a form of a recipe, which a recipe can't be copyrighted and neither can a hashtag. Um, and this legal battle has been going on since 2015. And just this past fall, I think, I'm, I'm kind of mixing up my dates, um, it went up and up and up. And finally, upper courts kind of struck it down. Um, and because this company filed a suit against um, herbalists selling under the term fire cider. Yeah, and um, and these are like little herbalists like that are on Etsy or selling exclusively through their Instagram, and um, you know just women trying to you know make a living for themselves. Um, and some of this is you know um, generational herbalism, like so that's something that they've been taught down the line from their mothers and grandmothers. And what is really telling is that the company that started the hash or the trademark and this company um, was founded by men. Um, and so, yeah, so, so that's one of the things that I study is how this hashtag, um, brought this group together. The fact that the term itself was trying to be, um, legally trademarked. Um, so there was a bunch of different things involved with that. Um, and you kind of see that playing out less legally, but more in the community building way, um, with Black Lives Matter. I don't know if y'all have been on Instagram this week. Um, it's a little crazy. Y'all have been. I I saw your posts. Yeah. Um, So the Blackout Tuesday, right? Everyone was posting the squares. Um, Everyone being white people were supposed to be posting squares. Um, And using the hashtag Blackout Tuesday. Um, And some were using the Black Lives Matter hashtag or BLM. And of course, if you have a significant significant following, anytime you use that hashtag, yours is going to pop up higher in the feed, right? Um, and so they were effectively co-opting inadvertently most of the time. I don't think anyone really did this purposely, but if we paused and thought about it, we're like, oh, wait, it's going to clog the feeds. It's going to co-opt the Black Lives Matter feed, which is not only if, um, a hashtag used for community organizing. So activists and protesters look to those tags to figure out where to go, where to get resources, how to help others. So there's lots of real active, in real time, synchronous kind of needs for that hashtag. Um, and then there's also just getting out the word, like the long-term word about it. Um, and so that tag was slowly co-opted. And then the the image itself, that's what the other thing we fail to forget is that Instagram doesn't just rely on tags. It relies on the images themselves. Those are part of the algorithm. And those black uh, squares took over our feeds. I don't know if you've gotten on recently, but I scrolled through just like an hour ago and it was still just tons of black squares. Um, so yeah, so the hashtags have these really powerful ways of, of pointing us to these really cool communities that show us food. I use the Black Lives Matter along with other tags to find specific food things, um, which is really hard right now because there's tons of blank images um, that people, you know, like, you know, with good intentions put up, you know, they wanted to be part of this, or, you know, you would hope it's good intentions, wanted to be part of this movement to show solidarity, but not quite thinking through the ramifications of what that tag means. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. And and that's what I find really interesting is that these tags can point us to some really exciting things. um, But then some really complicated things too, that, you know, we're trying to work within a system that you know, wasn't built for certain people. Um, and, you know, no matter how hard you try, how big a movement you create, it can it can also go south really quickly. 
So I was very active. Um, I actually lived in Brooklyn um, during the um, onset, during the creation of Occupy Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually one of the many people who was arrested on the Brooklyn Bridge early in that September um, when Occupy started. And one of the things I'm really recognizing right now is back then, I think I had a flip phone. I'm not mm-hmm. sure I even had a smartphone yet. At least not a um, smartphone with the same capabilities. Like they've changed so much in the past. Right. And, and so I am pretty sure I was still functioning with like a Razor flip phone. And this was, um, what was this, 2011? Um, and, you know, so the organization of a widespread movement was very different. Um, and now I'm, I'm just really kind of, it's a little bit overwhelming to understand the way um, the digital world has changed since Occupy Wall Street to today and, and how, um, you know, these, these very simple things like a hashtag can either be very helpful or very harmful, even if your intentions are good, depending on how you utilize them. I did see on your Instagram story um, on Blackout Tuesday that you shared a couple of great book recommendations to like better understand those algorithms and how the digital world works. And for someone like myself, who is not super tech savvy, um, I'm really looking forward to reading those books. Do you mind mentioning again, what those books were? Yeah. Yeah. So I have them right next to me. They're like my foundational books actually. Um, So they're not anything about food, but I find them hugely helpful to think through kind of the foundation on which I study food, which is this digital landscape. So I think they're really useful for understanding just the digital world, but then anything else that you're studying, because everything's on these digital worlds now, right? So whether you're studying fitness or um, mom life or, you know, like whatever it is you're studying or you have an interest in, it allows you a foundation to then look at that in a very, I think, useful, critical way. So one of them is Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest, and that's by Zenep Tufeki. I'm going to mispronounce her last name. I'm so sorry. It's T-U-F-E-K-C-I. And she is actually a professor here at UNC in um, information and library science, um, which I think is even cooler because she's technically like a librarian. But, <laughs> but she's an activist, like a hardcore activist. She's, she's really cool. She's very kick-ass. And the other one is um, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism by Sophia Noble. And that one focuses more on the actual algorithms, the things that we really can't control, um, the way things are built with implicit bias. And it includes some really crazy um, screenshots, which I find really helpful. Zenep's book is more of, uh, they're both very personal. They include the women's personal experiences. But Zenep's book also has this really great portion in the middle that that's what I kind of linked to or suggested folks uh, look into that's called the protesters toolkit um, or protesters tools and it really breaks down like this is how a hashtag can be helpful this is how a hashtag can hurt you this is how you know like how everyone's sharing um, lists of if you go to a protest this is how you should dress this is what you should have on your person Um, It talks about those same kinds of things through the digital lens, like what you should do digitally, what you shouldn't do. Um, And she talks about how it's changed, how it's evolved, because she was part of several um, protests abroad, I think in the Middle East, and I'm going to completely mess up the dates, but but a decade or more ago. And Mm -hmm. um, 
and how, how different things have changed even in that short amount of time, specifically with digital media, which I think is just crazy to think about. So, so yeah, I'm hoping my, my work can kind of fit somewhere in here at the intersection of food and resistance and the digital media landscape. Well, I think it's very important work because like I said, I was once very active as a physical body at movements. Like I would go out and protest and I, um, I was arrested for the causes that I believed in. And now as a mother, I'm what I call a couch advocate, a couch activist. Yeah. Um, and so not having a full understanding, I do know that when we first made our post, um, as Femidish about our stance um, in support of the movement, but also, you know, the fact that we had chosen not to release an episode um, this past Tuesday because it was Blackout Tuesday. Um, you know, at, at first I did release it with the Black Lives Matter hashtag and very quickly um, recognized that that shouldn't be the case and I removed it. Um, but it, I think there's so many people that just don't understand how hashtags work, how the internet works, how the algorithm functions. Um, so these books, I think, are going to be wonderful resources, and I'm really looking forward to kind of diving into them so that I can be a better couch activist since I <laughs> can't get arrested for my children. Someone has to make mac and cheese tomorrow. Yeah, I saw this beautiful. I have, I have similar kind of so I was raised in a very con- conservative household in the South and um, that, you know, I still to this day when I see protesters have to remind myself, like, no, they're doing a good thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. obviously depending on what they're protesting, not, not all protesters are made equal. Um, but, um, you know, the current protesters, I have to remind myself that looting is a form of, of expressing their trauma um, in certain cases. Like, you know, you have to like step back and, and hold your judgment Um because, you know, we, we don't have those lived experiences or I don't have those lived experiences. Um, but I have to remind myself that, you know, like it's, it's a process of learning. Right. Um, but I did find this beautiful um, list um, from a woman of color who posted, like, don't worry if you can't be out there. Everyone has a role to play. And it had someone needs to um, call the someone needs to make the calls. Someone needs to bake the bread. Someone needs to watch the children. And it, and it went on and on and on. Someone needs to be at the hospital. Someone needs to be, you know, it had like all these roles. Um, someone needs to do the laundry. Like, so you have clothes to wear again the next day. So it was just a beautiful way of like, it takes a village. And um, yeah, and it made me feel better, you know, because, you know, even if you make donations or you do learning on your own part and read the right books and whatnot, it can still feel like you're not doing a whole lot, but there, you've, you've still got to, you got to raise the next generation of critical thinkers. Or I think, yeah, I think it's so important. I have a friend who's a social worker. Um, Sandy and I are based in Portland, Maine. Um, mm-hmm. I my best friend is in the other Portland, as I always refer to it. The other Portland, <laughs> She's yes, in Portland, Oregon. Um, and you know, all the time. She's a social worker and I always come to her like, I'm not doing enough. And she's like, Yeah, but you're raising a next generation who are not gonna hold um, the same kind of systemic biases that we're currently fighting against. And, you know, and sometimes that's enough. And also I have to say, as someone who has participated in protests in the past um, that have ended in my arrest, um, man, was it so um, rejuvenating (laughs) to walk out of the Crown Heights precinct in, in Brooklyn and to have people 
cheering for me and being like, thank you. And you, you did this and we recognize your sacrifice and here's a cigarette and here's a bottle of water. And do you need cab fare home? And um, yeah. so there's so many ways to get involved without going to the protest. Um, you can write letters, you can, you know, feed people, you can offer water, you can just stand outside precincts and wait for protesters to get released um, and offer them a cigarette. <laughs> Because that, yeah. that can be very helpful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there's just so many. And then I think food is playing such a central part of that. You know, the people that are feeding the protesters, um, that gentleman who um, just north of the Capitol in D.C. that sheltered yeah. those protesters. Um, like, oh, my God, that's like a terrifying situation to be in as a protester, as a homeowner. Um, and, you know, and he, and he fed those people. And. I don't know. I just think there's so much there's, you know, as a food scholar, I'm like, oh, my God, there's so much to write about here. Like, I wish I didn't have to watch my kids all day so I could write about all the cool food things that are happening. Um, but then just as someone who truly believes in that the food is political and, um, you know, it 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 makes me feel really good to see all of these things playing out and um, how food is becoming this connecting tissue for folks. Um not as much as we'd like it to be, you know, there's still lots of, of tissue that needs to be fixed, but, um, but it is, it is helping in certain ways or helping people really think about it. And that's what the role I hope I fill is that I, I give people some tools to, to use food as a way to kind of think through these critical issues, whether they be race, um, which is one that we're dealing with right now a lot, um, or gender or class or whatever it may be. Um, I think food is a really approachable way through that. It's also, I mean, we talk about race, like it's the food system in the United States is inherently racist. It is built upon the oppression of black people. And so to like, yeah. there's no way that we can separate those two conversations. Like it are we could go back to obviously slavery and then afterwards, like the workers and the, um, the makers of food and even the people who taught um, uh, the white folks how to make food and how to um, how to use different types of food uh, it's and preserve it in ways. I mean, those were all things that now are lauded when um, wonderful white chefs go do all these fancy types of cooking. But if you take those certain pieces back, I mean, it's just it's inherently built um, in, a, in a racist system. So it's it's important to talk about as a lens to talk about some of these things, but also it's just, it seems like the only way to talk about it is to understand those, um, the race piece that, that is built into the food system. Definitely. And I think, you know, we're, we're giving more space for folks to talk about that. We're, we're allowing, um, just some, just beautiful, wonderful people, I think, to talk about it. And I, I think, um, my, one of my favorite authors that I've known for, since I was an undergrad, actually, she and I um, knew each other when when I was an intern for Food Waste Texas, which is a um, his, history, oral history um, organization that kind of uh, tries to preserve Texas food history. And um, her name is Tony Tipton Martin. She won the Beard Award for Best Cookbook this year, Jubilee, um, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking. I don't know if you all have um, had a chance to get your hands on this book. Um, Tony is just the most beautiful, amazing person I've ever met. She's so kind and she is so smart and has this immense amount of food knowledge, but she's able to, you know, really educate you in this way that just makes you feel so excited to learn more about these really problematic parts of the past. Like, you know, you're excited to be a better person. 
and um and this this newest cookbook is um is a pure cookbook like it's got little stories and stuff in it but it is every you know every page is a is a recipe and um but she has other books too and other writing where she just I don't know I always feel so enlightened after reading her and she she always has this way of saying like you know food you know when she actually says this or just through the writing she writes like food is is what can bring us together through these really tough conversations and you know we if we should bring together over it we should share this meal and talk about all these difficult topics but I still want to share this meal with you um I don't know I just think she's a really powerful powerful person and I'm very glad that the world is giving her her due now um so yeah I think she's I think she's another great person to add to just any kind of learning on food and feminism um and she's not even explicitly like talking about feminism and her work it just comes through in the fact that so many um food traditions of our nation are built on black women's food labor of course um sorry sorry to like wax poetical about tony tipton martin i just am a big fan of hers oh please do that's what we're about wax. tell us about all the badass ladies we want to know all of them she is, she is like number one badass uh, but she's also just like really really sweet um and she's, yeah, she's just a, a cool lady. Um, but yeah. I think that's kind of like an important observation, like you saying that she's like really badass, but she's also really, really sweet. And that's one of the, the things that I think is great about women. Um, and maybe it has to do with like what our society expects of men and women. But I know so many women that are so strong and so tough and so nurturing and so caring and so sweet. And they can do that in the same breath. <laughs> Yeah, she yeah. manages it. And I think I think you're right. There's like a gendered perception. Like I think we see this ex- especially among um, among like women chefs and mm-hmm. how they have to uh, perform a certain gender. This like weird fluid fluid gender in the um, uh, in the kitchen, like the broscape of the kitchen. And um, yeah, so we see a lot of women that occupy occupy that like um, that male landscape of of the food industry and have to put on the show and. Tony's just a very like normal person that just, I don't know. I think I could listen to her talk for hours. Um, You mentioned um, at the beginning of this a little bit, you used the term um, gendered kitchens uh, Mm -hmm. and saying about how that commercial kitchens are a space that were built for men. So on that same vein, like you were just mentioning, can you speak about that a little bit about what are some physical, is it physical? Is it cultural? What, what do you, what does it mean to say commercial kitchens are gendered and built for men? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it all comes down to different kitchens, of course, but, um, you know, and you, and you're finding this changing, of course, as you, as you, as you have more women owning restaurants and building the restaurants and building out how they want their kitchen to work. Um, but these different equipments, you know, whether it's just like the height of the counter, um, the way the, um, the setup is built. It's very militaristic. Um, and you know, you've got this hierarchy. You don't necessarily have a collective approach, which is very feminist. Um, which sometimes that doesn't work in a kitchen. You, you know, you have a hierarchy for a reason. Um, but sometimes that leads to pretty, you know, patriarchal kind of structures within a kitchen. You have the chef de cuisine, you have the head guy, and then it goes down the, the row. Right. Um, and so with that, you have all different kinds of things. I think we see the gendered kitchen played out more in, um, more explicitly in the home kitchen. Um, home economists and domestic scientists of the turn of the century in 19-teens and 20s and, and a little bit later too, um, 
kind of up into the 50s, really, um, different waves of them wanted to improve upon the kitchen to make it different levels of easier, easier to clean, um, easier to cook in and all these different things. Um, but all the while keeping you in the kitchen, keeping you the woman in the kitchen. Um, for a while, most countertops were built at a certain height that accommodated women specifically wearing heels. Um, so, so they took into account your heel height, like with your height, like it was like a specific height. Um, so if you ever find yourself in like a home built 1950s or earlier and the, and the kitchen counters might be a certain height and they're either like too tall or too short for you. And you're like an average height woman. Granted, the average height of women has changed over time, but you know, there's, it, you realize like, I don't fit into this space for, you know, X, Y, Z reason. Um, yeah. So there's all sorts of improvements, you know, to the actual kitchen tech, to the way the kitchen was laid out. There's some really beautiful writing on trophy kitchens. Um, my colleague, Emily Contois wrote some really great stuff about trophy kitchens um, in, in visual media and movies, um, in Nora Ephron movies. I think that's the right, Nora Ephron, right? She's the, the cool lady making all the films about like proud, yes. amazing women. Yeah. Um, so the kitchens in those films and how they how they work um, along with the kitchens that were laid out by home economists to be the most efficient kitchens. Um, so yeah, there's a lot built into it that you know on on its face is not necessarily meant to be detrimental. It's not meant to hinder women or or do those things, but it but it ended up doing that um, because it still kept women like occupied in the kitchen. Um, so that's why I think we have such a complicated relationship with the kitchen too and food because it felt for a long time that we were forced into the kitchen or kept in the kitchen and or kept with food related labor. And so we don't want to turn back to that for fear of being associated with that era of our foremothers. Um, when in reality, like there's a lot of liberation and resistance and really cool things to take from all of that. It wasn't all just bad. So that's the kind of stuff I like to piece apart. Yeah. I have to say in light of like COVID and um, everything, like how it's just drastically changed, changed life and this resurgence of an interest in baking sourdough and having a home kitchen garden. Um, it, it's been kind of refreshing to me to see women embrace and men, but but to embrace the positive aspects of kitchen labor. Um, because I do think for so long women were, the, the kitchen labor was forced upon them. Like they had no other option that it almost became like an, a, just an innate aversion. Like I don't want to be the one to cook. I don't want to be the one to provide food because it has this gendered expectation. And now I'm noticing a lot since we've been under quarantine and since questions of food security have come up, um, that women and men have really embraced this idea of like, I need to know how to bake bread. I need to know how to plant a garden. Definitely. I, I too have really enjoyed seeing all these folks and I've gotten lots of uh, inquiries from my friends and strangers on the internet about how to grow things in a garden, how to bake certain things, especially with the um, uh, little recipes I was making for my kid where I would distill a recipe into visuals because she can't read yet. And um, so I had a lot of moms asking me, like, how do you do that? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think it's a really great 
shift that we're experiencing. Hopefully it does remind us, like I said earlier, like it, it exposes some of these kind of pitfalls or just like memory gaps in the way our food system works. Um, you know, that said, my child has not eaten any new foods during this whole time <laughs> and has become a pickier eater. And, um, you know, so there's, there's like, you know, ups and downs, but on the other end of that, you know, I, so I was writing my dissertation, writing all these freelance pieces and stuff. And then COVID hit and my husband is an essential worker. He does the, um, the, the cloud systems, I can't even think of the right words, but he's, he's IT for the, for Duke health, for a local giant, um, uh, system, health system. So he's really important and has to work and I needed to be full-time childcare. And, you know, while I'm very happy to do that and happy to be there for my kids, and obviously, you know, it's more important that we stay home and make sure we don't infect anyone with whatever germs we might be carrying. Um, that was a huge blow to all of my work. And while I'm very privileged to have a spouse that has his job and will be fine, I wonder how many women had to give up similar kind of situations, um, you know, whether it's their research, their work, or their jobs, like their full-time jobs. I've read so many reports of women oh, just saying yeah. I had to step down and, or I had to cut back up, you know, half, half of it. Um, you know, even, I think there was a wonderful article, wonderful and just that it was very, you know, like great to see that it shared, not that it was happening, of a, a CEO, a woman um, who was head of this company had to like step down because her husband just like couldn't handle taking care of their three-year-old full-time. Oh my gosh. And um, I think women collectively like roared when they read this yeah. I mean, but we're I'm like a, a public yeah. platform, so I don't want to like, you know, be so outraged, but I feel like just yelling like, get a new husband. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, so many men have stepped up and so many partners, I should say too. like my husband is, you know, like he, he's trying his best to give me whatever time I need. He takes off days here and there. Um, but at the end of the day, like he's an essential worker, like he has to be there if certain systems go down for the health uh, care system and the hospitals, like it's an important thing that he's there. Um, and my graduate research can obviously like sit on the freaking back burner, but you know, it does make me wonder, given the fact that this is what I'm studying, is how women are using food as resistance, especially women on Instagram. Um, and there's even more of us on Instagram these days. Like, they're sharing all of their stories of, I had to stop doing this, so now I'm in the kitchen making sourdough. And I like doing that, but I'd rather be doing my work and sure. getting people to do it. So, yeah, like, I am so excited to see all these these um, initiatives, these learnings, these new things, especially the things that you're sharing with your kids. I think that's really cool because I'm, I'm enjoying that too. But it does, like I'm really, I'm not excited, but I am interested as a scholar to see the numbers when this all kind of washes over of how many women had to stop um, and maybe come back hopefully to their jobs um, or just got set back altogether. Like I have no idea when I'm going to finish if this goes on. I have no idea when I'm going to finish my dissertation at this point, if my kids don't go back to school. Um, well, well, it's interesting you yeah. mentioned specifically about what in academia, I was listening um, to a, a podcast, this is now like third hand podcast, but um, information. <laughs> um, and they were talking about just this, about how women are, are less productive than men during quarantine when, mm -hmm. when the meaning of productive is how much like, you know, work outside the home you're getting done. Um, so, yeah. 
when they it was in um they surveyed a bunch of different journals like academic journals and the submissions from women went down they already were very low and they were mm-hmm. went down exponentially over the past few months um and there was a couple other um like when it came to like women researchers like what ones were being applied for like what grants were being applied for and what um research proposals were being floated around like some other measures of that and those were uh those were like completely like you know significantly dropped in number and i don't have the numbers right right now but yeah um and it's what and what they were deducing was like you know women are not able to have the same amount of time that men are going to come out of quarantine more productive like oh look at all this time i have like all right like daddy's working shut the door and women Mm -hmm. just don't have that same uh luxury in a lot of in a lot of ways and it's not to just denounce every single man because of course there are so many out there wonderful things but just the natural like the natural labor that falls like you were saying on on different on the different genders that they're seeing that actually playing out in numbers yeah and i mean i think i think my husband is a good example or my my family dynamic is a good example in the fact that I'm a student. You have more women are typically students, um, and you also have women in lower paying jobs um, or jobs that are more flexible. So maybe you sure. you go remote, but then maybe you have to slowly stop doing it. Um, men are um, typically paid more. So if you had to come down to the decision of okay, who gets paid more? Right. That's the person that's going to keep their job, and the other one will stay home and take care of the kids. Um, you know, if it comes down to that kind of a decision, which ours was partially based on that, I make very little as a grad student, so it doesn't even count, but, but like, you know what I mean? Like if you were in that kind of a decision and you had to say, okay, what's, who's going to keep us afloat? Who has this job security? And that's the other thing, who has job security? Right. Um, so, the health you know, insurance. Right, exactly. And so, you know, as much as my husband is a huge feminist and very helpful and very pro me, you know, doing whatever I need to do to succeed. Um, at the end of the day, like he is ahead of me, um, in all of his career paths, um, and, and money earning. And so of course it made sense for him to be the, you know, useful one in addition to being, you know, an essential worker, whatever. Um, but, <laughs> whatever. <It's essential>. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but I, I, I wonder how many folks are making those same decisions that are in, um, much tighter situations. And um, I'm really curious, I, again, not excited. I don't want to sound like morbidly curious, but but I, I think it will be really telling for my for my own work and the work of so many others, how this plays out for women in, um, in front of house positions. And um, like if they come back to those jobs, specifically if they're mothers, um, so many different positions within the restaurant industry, within the food retail industry, food production. Um, I just, I think it's going to be a staggering number when we see them. Um, staggering just in general, obviously for the food industry, because we know it's taken a huge hit. But I think the, I think the gender dynamics are going to be pretty severe. Um, so yeah. I'm hope I'm and, wrong though. <laughs> right. And just the equality, you know, I mean, we're talking about a very specific type of, um, of demographic of like people that maybe have the flexibility to have that choice um, yeah. and seeing that play out. But then just the, there's already so much inequality that is being, that we're seeing very acutely. And so that's how that's even going to be more acute for women and intersectional women, you know, um, mm-hmm. black women, but um, black, you know, uh, other minorities, um, and, and how that's playing out for sure, you know, and people, just the uh, economic differences as well. So it's, yeah, there's yeah. a lot that we're going to see very right in our faces. I think that we won't be able to, to look away from like 
that yep this is this happened and these this is the result of all the inequality that was there before this crisis and now we're going to really see the ramifications of that right and i think i think we can learn so much from the black lives matter movement and just being giving voice to the folks that really need to have that space but then those of us that have a platform using our voice like silence is not an option um and i'm hoping that this carries over you know black lives matter is the ultimate important point right now um, but I hope this gives people courage to, you know, speak up about gender issues and class issues and housing issues and all the other issues that are all tied up in food security and, uh, you know, food access and, you know, nutrition and things like that. Um, all of that's interwoven with food. And um, I hope that it gives people, you know, the, the energies and the, the courage to kind of keep those, those tough conversations going. Um, while constantly like critically analyzing like where they're coming from. <laughs> so our conversation has gone all over the place, like historical women, Jane Austen, um, race issues and uh, class issues and obviously issues of feminism and labor division between husbands and wives and family dynamics. So I kind of want to end on a little bit lighter note. Yeah, and sure. Yeah, because you study like food history or food her story, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious. I have this very kind of small collection of antique kitchen tools. Um, I'm fascinated by them, but my collection is small because I kind of have this fantasy about maybe someday considering myself a minimalist. It's a very unrealistic fantasy. <laughs> but anyway, I have a French fry slicer and a wine bottle corker. And like two tin recipe boxes and mm -hmm. lots of butter dishes. But anyway, um, is there a bygone kitchen tool that you would love people to just kind of re rediscover? Like I love some of these antique kitchen tools that I just, nobody uses anymore. And some of them are really useful. Is there anything like that in your kitchen? Yeah. Now it's like having to pick my like favorite child. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I so I'm a food photographer too. So I have, I, I cannot be a minimalist because I have two armors full of props, uh, historical and contemporary for my food photography. Um, so I have tons of that kind of stuff that I use on a daily, not a daily basis, but that is actually in my kitchen and then set aside for food props. Um, I, I don't know. Like I, so I collect rolling pins. I've been, I've been slowly, I've been given rolling pins from women like matriarchs of families that have passed on, which I find like profoundly, I don't know, like I cry when I think about it actually. <laughs> you entrust me with the grandmother's rolling pin. So I have, I have, <laughs> I have four of them now and none of them I are my- four too. Oh my God, I thought I was the only one that had four. No, no. And I don't, I don't, I only use one of them. Um, I, and none of these are my like blood family. So I feel like incredibly, um, loved by that and I use rolling pins for so many different things so I would I would say a rolling pin but I feel like that's like a like a one people should should be using anyways maybe I'm giving people too much credit maybe people don't <laughs> use rolling pins I use um, a pint glass it's so yeah I mean I use whatever you have rolling pins Andy I have four of them you can have one <laughs> <laughs> I just flower up a pint glass and continue I will on. give you a rolling pin <laughs> I also use a wine bottle. Wine bottles work really well, um, especially for pastry, because um, you can put water in it and kind of, or wine and roll it. It like <laughs> adds a certain weight to it. Um, let's see. I don't know. Um, oh my goodness, I have no idea. Um, 
one of the things I really, really like, and it's very, I guess this is very Jane Austen, um, is so back in the day, folks would carry around spices, like, because spices were really expensive, right? And back in the day, I mean, like, centuries ago, um, they would carry around their own spices because spices were an example of wealth. Like, you had, like, enough wealth. I'm trying to think of an analogy to today, um, but I can't really think of one. It's, like, maybe, like, I don't know, carrying around your own, like, CBD drops or something that you can <laughs> I can't, I can't think of one, but 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 that's what they did. They carried around different spices, and one of the spices that was really easy to carry was nutmeg, because it's you know it's like a little ball, like it's a little like a dried berry, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, they would carry, they'd have a little pouch, and they'd carry around their own nutmeg, and they'd have this like tiny little grater that had a little um, like a like you have the little, it's like a tiny little cheese grater. Uh, and then it's flat on one side with the grater on the other side, and then at the bottom is a little trap door type thing. And this this is this is the one I have is small, and they come even smaller. And mine isn't even that old. Um, it's like it fits into your palm of your hand. It's really small, and you'd grate, and then you'd open the trap door and put the nutmeg over whatever you were eating. Um, and typically, you'd have nutmeg in a lot of traditional British cocktails, a lot of European cocktails, like old ones, punches and stuff included nutmeg. I don't know why. Um, it tasted good. It tasted fancy. Um, sure. It was their truffle or something like that. Um, I'm having a really hard time with analogous. <laughs> I think, I think a, a truffle, a truffle is a good analogy. That's a good one. A truffle, you know, a truffle from like the 2010s. Um, and so people would put like nutmeg on things. So I have this tiny little nutmeg grater that is used exclusively for nutmeg in our house. It never gets washed. It's because um, it's only ever used for nutmeg unless my husband uses it for something else and I'm unawares. Um, it's like in the drawer with our our other microplanes and that's the one I would think I would like I would want everyone to have a nutmeg grater I don't have I don't have a nutmeg grater I have a wine corker that's Um, cool though I don't even know if that's what it's really called I call it a wine corker (laughs) this contraption that pinches my children's fingers all the time because they just think it's fun to, to, to play with the little crank part of it um, but what really kind of tickles me about it, for lack of better words, is that my mother made this really big deal about her mother, so my maternal grandmother, making wine and having this recipe for homemade wine. And um, recently, my mother's identical twin gifted me two tin boxes, two tin recipe boxes full of all these recipes from my maternal grandmother and my maternal great-grandmother. Oh, and they like kind of like dug through them very quickly, like looking for this wine recipe. And I find it and literally it was like, put grapes in container, leave for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. There was like nothing else. It was just like, I don't know, let them rot and then drink it. <laughs> I mean, that's, yep. that's the basics, I guess, right? Like, that's yeah, it's just like this wine corker, like I had owned it, like, I don't know, since I was like 17 as like this piece of our family history. And I was just waiting for this wine recipe that was just going to like change my life. And I get it. And it was literally like wine and time. <laughs> or grapes, grapes and time. <laughs> I guess it's a lesson in patience too. I don't know. You're, you know, women teaching each other patience or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Or maybe you get, like, kind of weird when you drink it. Like, maybe it's not a regular, you know, wine effect. Yeah. Maybe, so maybe I can follow it and just grab the right kind of grapes and throw them in the right kind of jug. Because she does, like, specify that it's, like, some kind of, like, clay pottery that I can't say that I own. 
You know what I yeah. mean? Like I, I have a stainless steel pot that might do the trick, but it's definitely not what she describes. But it, it is a very, it, it's funny because the recipe is literally like X amount of grapes and you squish them and then you wait. <laughs> I love that. I think recipes are just the most craziest thing. The way, the things that we leave out of them and hope that our, 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 our you know, our, what am I trying to say? Our children and our children's children will understand through them, like what that lack, what those abbreviations mean. It's like, there's the famous like recipe from, from old women's cookbooks that just says, bake a cake in the usual way. Uh, (laughs) What is that? Your grandmother's just carrying on that tradition. Make the wine in the usual way. Like, yeah. I, maybe maybe there it, are, it's like a whole bunch of inherent instructions that you're, whoever the reader was intended for was supposed to know. But, you know, so yeah, make the wine in the usual way. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's like I have all these recipes and it's uh, uh, it's related to a different project, a book project I'm actually working on um, where I'm trying to kind of transcribe some of these recipes from my family for, for a different reason than actually reproducing them. But, but anyways, I like find them. And I remember like reading one of them and having to call my mom and be like, what exactly is a scant of cinnamon? <laughs> like what is a scant? It's just scant. like a, a little pitch, right? Just like a little finger. It's being like, well, not quite a, it's like less than a pinch. I'm like, then why would you even put it in the recipe? <laughs> yeah no I um so I've been writing recipes out for my kid right who can't read yet and so I'm trying to make these visuals and I'm trying to draw them really quickly because I'm I'm transcribing them effectively from existing recipes so I you know she I I have little symbols that I think she recognizes like a little cow for milk and things like that um but I I I couldn't figure out what to do for a pinch so I started drawing like a little asterisk Mm -hmm. and so now I'm worried that she's gonna have these symbols in her head because we've been doing (laughs) for months and it's been working really well so she's wanted me to continue so now I'm worried she's gonna think like what is an asterisk of cinnamon like what yeah. is that? <laughs> That's I, cute. I just want to keep it going like I, I like I I know fully I fully know that I'm doing this in in this long history of women using shorthand and code and just like sorry to like tie it back to everything but like hashtags like using all of these different like shorthand code community languages to create these recipes that we pass down for a myriad of reasons um and I laugh just because I'm like what were these crazy women thinking back then and I'm like here I am doing it it's an asterisk an asterisk of cinnamon dear it's just go with it like who knows maybe in like 40 years that's going to be the new thing you know people are going to see what you're doing on instagram they're going to do it to a whole next generation of women it's going to say an asterisk of of cinnamon asterisk (laughs) i hope i I, I mean i just finished my bachelor's degree this semester in in food systems policy and social change and i remember having my conversation with my capstone advisor and just to be able to get through the conversation on the phone I had my um at the time he was almost two years old make clam chowder and it was like the best clam chowder I ever had yeah and it was just like you know a little bit of this a little bit of that and I just handing him ingredients and he was stirring the pot and it's, it's so fun to cook with kids and yeah. they are the future yeah, they, yeah. they're great they're so much more capable in a kitchen than people really realize um, they are like, I, think it's great. I think it's great that you turned her homeschool experience into this food studies um kind of experience yeah it's been fun so you know we're gonna kind of wrap it up and 
I have one last question for you, and then I want to hear about where I can li our listeners can find out more about your work and read more of your writing because you just have so much to offer as far as the intersections of food and feminism. And on that note, in your opinion, what is the intersection of food and feminism? Oh my god! <laughs> you have you have one <laughs> sentence. Wait, no. How many oh. characters are on Instagram? You get oh, two hundred and sixty characters. <laughs> That's Twitter. Instagram is about two thousand. So. Um... <laughs> Okay, Twitter. Twitter rules apply. Twitter rules. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, food and feminism. Good God, that's a loaded question. Um, and it's almost 10 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> uh, my brain is slowly turning off. Um, food and feminism, it, it, to me, they are they are one and the same just because they are built um, upon the same, or they, they should be one and the same. Um, they're built on some of the same structures and foundations of community and um, uh, collaboration. And in order to work properly, they require all of these different things. They work, they require um, collective efforts and labors and recognition of, of all of those different things, um, which is why you find instances where food systems fail um, or food systems serve only certain groups of people or they serve people poorly by poor nutrition or whatever. And that's why you see feminism fail so many times um, because it only serves a specific kind of woman. So, you know, I think they're built on these same principles that we often forget um, because it's hard to, like, do those things, and especially in societies that don't encourage it. Um, so I think they, they go hand in hand. Like, they should be inherently kind of like, you know, not carbon copies of each other, but clearly linked. Um, but we, we, miss, we, we miss a lot of those links. Um, so that's what I hope I can contribute to, like reconnecting some of those links through my work. Um, but there's already so much great work out there. We're just we're not looking at it in the right way, um, or not lifting it up to the right audiences and voices um, to get that message out. So that's kind of where I stand, I guess. Sorry, that was way more than a sentence. I <laughs> that that's you that's all right. I do Twitter. <laughs> Red rules where you get to add that extra you press the plus button and it gives you an extra tweet that's what i did so <laughs> this is good that you're like a digital scientist you can you know the workarounds you know the loopholes mm -hmm. i know the loopholes <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh casey i feel like we could talk all night about so many other things we really like hope said we've touched on so many different topics um some of it directly related to feminism and women and food and some not you know we there's a lot that's going on in the world and um, it would be really remiss of us to not acknowledge the space that we're talking about these things under. I would imagine if we talk to you in a year, it's going to be a very different type of conversation. So it's yeah. um, it's kind of like a little time capsule right now, the things that we're able to talk about. And you have such a wealth of knowledge and such a wonderful perspective. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this with us and our listeners. Tell us where people can find out more about you and your work and all your research. Yeah, so you can find pretty much everything. I, being a digital person, have like a thousand websites that I curate and, and work with, but um, they all link back to one, which is kind of my, my academic portfolio that has all of my academic and non-academic work. It's at kchysmith.com. And that'll link to you to all the different kind of work that I do, um, the cookbooks I've helped write, and 
my Instagram feed, which has all my photography, um, which is my current favorite thing to do right now since I'm home all the time, um, as well as kind of my dissertation research. You can find it all there. Awesome. Wonderful. And for our listeners out there, um, you'll be able to find all of that information about Casey on our Instagram as well and our website and Facebook as well. Um, I'll be sure to, if you haven't already, to follow Femidish on Instagram and Facebook at Femidish. That's F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H. Uh, you can email us uh, with questions or ideas for uh, future topics and questions for us to ask our guests um, or suggestions for future women that you would like to hear from. That's at femidish at gmail.com. Um, I also just want to note that we're recording this in the beginning of June and there's, is a lot going on. There, um, is obviously the coronavirus. There's the pre police brutality protests that are going on. And we by no means mean to, um, this, um, to not acknowledge the importance of all that that's going on or to seem like we're being uh, too frivolous with the conversation, but we did bring a little bit of levity to our conversation. Um, and we very much acknowledge all of the um, important work that's happening right now. And again, who knows what our conversations will be like with even a couple of weeks, things seem to be changing. So for anyone out there that listened and thought that we were being out of touch, we're um, very, very aware and very concerned um, and are paying attention and really looking about how these issues of food and feminism also play a role in all the big world issues going on right now. So thank you again, Casey, for coming on. And thank you, Hope, as always. And we will see you all on our next episode. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over